If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For three decades in the middle of the 20th century, Cary Grant was a bona fide Hollywood icon. A sex symbol, money-making machine and the epitome of debonair sophistication. Yet his formative years in pre-war Bristol were marred by poverty and his mother's mental illness. Mark Glancy's new book, Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, traces this remarkable transformation. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Mark discusses the life of one of Britain's greatest ever acting exports. So, Mark, um, as you point out at the very beginning of your book, uh, Cary Grant declared in 1984 that, quote unquote, I definitely don't trust biographies. So uh, with that in mind, what inspired you to to write one about him yourself? What what is it about him that you find so compelling? Well, I I suppose two things. One is um, that I I lived in Bristol uh, when I was a postgraduate student and I saw where he was from uh, and was quite surprised to find out that he was from such a, such a humble background. He was from a very working class, um, family and, and neighborhood. Uh, so a lot of my interest was about how he got to be Cary Grant. How do you go from being, uh, a relatively uneducated working class boy in, in 1910, uh, to being, uh, the most sophisticated, glamorous, debonair man in the universe, uh, just two decades later. Uh, so that, that was a, um, a major, major um, factor in, in deciding to write the book. Um, the other thing was that um, there have been many biographies, biographies of him written, and I think so many of them are like historical fiction. They, um, they aren't very reliable. Um, they don't have um, adequate referencing. A lot of it seems to be speculation about him. And so I, I really wanted to write something that was much more factual uh, and documented. Sure. And as you just uh, kind of alluded to there, what distinguishes your biography from others is, I guess, the fact that you were able to gain access to his own personal papers. I mean, can you tell us how that came about? And, and, and what, do the, what do the papers tell us about Grant that we didn't already know? Well, the, the Cary Grant papers are held as a collection at a library in Los Angeles, uh, and they've they've been available for quite some time, uh, but no one had no one had used them before uh, in writing uh, 
a biography of him. Um, it seems to me no one had, no one has ever used them really at all because they have so much information in them. Uh, and from the first time, I, I I was very skeptical about the papers because I thought, well, the, these have, these have been available for ten years. They will have been trawled through. There must there must not be anything really remarkable here. Uh, and then, um, I mean, from the very first day, uh, it, it was clear that there were a lot of personal documents. Uh, a lot of things about his upbringing, his family, his childhood, uh, as well as a lot about his career. Um, everything from contracts to annotated scripts uh, to correspondence with some of the key directors he worked with, Alfred Hitchcock, for example. Um, so I, I really thought it was a treasure trove. And, and it, was, it was then, it was the first day in the archive that I thought, oh my, there's, a, there's not only a book here, there's a long book here. And am I right in saying that he kept a lot of um of these papers in, in in this incredible vault in his Beverly Hills mansion? Yes, I think I think this stemmed partly from from his Bristol past that uh, his um, uh, several members of his family were killed in the Bristol Blitz, uh, and their their homes were completely destroyed in in 1940, um, and so they lost a lot of family documents that way. Um, and I, so I think he had this in the back of his mind that his, his, um, his own personal archive could be lost, um, to fire, to mudslides, this sort of thing. Cause he, he lived way up in the Beverly Hills and at the time, uh, where he, where he lived was quite remote. It's not really anymore, but it was a high spot, uh, and a, um, a spot where you might, you might get a fire or, or a mudslide. And, uh, so I think to keep all this stuff safe, he had a steel walk-in vault built into the side of his house, um, as, as you do. And, uh, he he kept all the stuff there. Some of, some of it just you know sort of packed away there. Um, some of it on display. Uh, and various people who knew him uh, throughout his life commented on on how much time he spent on, in the vault, uh, putting things away and looking at things. And um, uh, so it, it was a big part of his his life. I think this vault. And um, was it also partly the fact that there had been a, in, in his own lifetime a few kind of um, biographical hatchet jobs done on him? Was this his? It's kind of way of ensuring that an accurate record of his life was kept for posterity. I think so. Um, there's always been an approach to writing about Cary Grant that is, this man seems so handsome and charming, he must really be a devil. <laughs> you know, the, the desire to expose him and to find something malevolent and unattractive in him has driven a lot of the writing about him. And so I, I think he was determined to uh, have this record of his career, at least as he saw it, uh, and document his past in that way. Now, this is a story of, um, in many ways, a great celebrity, success, wealth, but I guess it's also to some extent a story of, um, of triumph over adversity. I mean, like you said earlier, Grant was born into a into a working class family in Bristol, and as you mentioned in the book, his mother, Elsie, was was committed to Bristol Lunatic Asylum when he was very young. So his wasn't an easy upbringing. I mean, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about his early years. Well, by all accounts, um, up until the time his mother was committed, he had a fairly happy 
uh, an ordinary childhood for a working class boy of that time. Uh, he was very bright. He he was top of his class in school. Um, he you know he had friends. Uh, he was getting along fine, it seems. And then one day, when he was eleven years old, he came home from school and found that his mother wasn't there, and um, no one would tell him why. Uh, so she simply she simply disappeared as far as he was concerned. And after a while, uh, some some cousins told him that actually she was dead uh, and that he would never see her again. Um, but I'm not sure whether he really believed that because he didn't have a grave to visit and there was no no funeral. And so I, I think he grew up assuming that his mother had deserted him um, and um, that he that he would never see her again. And it wasn't until he was. Uh, 30 years old, that his father, not quite on his deathbed, but very nearly on his deathbed, said, by the way, your mother's still alive. She's in uh, the Brist- what was called the Bristol Lunatic Asylum. Um, and you can only imagine the impact that, that would have on someone who hadn't seen their mother since they were 10 years old. So did he, did he get back in contact with her after that? He did. Uh, immediately. And uh, she was released from the asylum and she lived another 40 years and he supported her for the rest of her life. Um, I mean, it's a, the story has a happy ending in that sense, but it wasn't easy. They, you know, they had to rebuild their relationship. uh, And they really struggled to do that, to rebuild the relationship. Um, one of the one of the um, amazing things that I found in the archive was uh, there was there was a file labeled um, correspondence with Elsie Leach, his mother, and I thought, oh, I wonder what that's going to be, and you know maybe a postcard or two, uh, and they it was more of a box than a file, uh, and it had letters from uh, the uh, forty years that she lived after getting out of the asylum, uh, all of these letters from her. Um, and he kept he kept a lot of his replies too. He kept copies of his replies, uh, and so I could I could see how they rebuilt their relationship, and I could see how difficult it was. And um, now, how did he get his big break? I mean, and how did he go about learning his craft as a, as an actor? When um, when his mother disappeared, uh, his. Uh, Childhood became very difficult. His father didn't really look after him very well. Um, he was left on his own a great deal of the time. Um, he got expelled from school uh, at, at the age of at the age of fourteen. Um, but the one great love of his life at that point was the music hall, the the theaters that had um, variety acts in them. Uh, and so he worked at the uh, Bristol Empire, and he worked uh, later at the Bristol Hippodrome as a backstage runner, and. I think he found his alternative family there. He found a lot of warmth uh, and supportive adults there, people who who looked after him. Uh, and uh, when he when he was expelled from school, he joined one of the acts that had been playing at the Hippodrome, the uh, the Pender Troupe of Acrobats. So his his big break. He, he he is that little boy who ran away uh, to join the circus. You know, he he joined the Pender troupe of acrobats. They didn't they didn't actually play circuses, but they went they toured uh, Britain first and then America, 
uh, as an acrobatic troupe. And so that, that, I think, is where he gets his incredible physical agility that you see on screen. His grace, uh, his, his physical grace, comes from this um, long, intense training he had uh, as an acrobat that um, he, he, I mean, he did that for um, seven or eight years. So who first spotted his, his talent in Hollywood? Well, he, he, he had a hard time getting to Hollywood. He, took a, uh, he did a couple of uh, screen tests uh, where he didn't, he didn't do very well. And they, didn't, they, didn't, um, they didn't like him. Uh, they didn't like his accent, for one thing. Uh, he, had a very, he had a very thick neck. Uh, and he, he, it took him a while to learn how to hide that, how to use collars to hide uh, his, his thick neck. Um, so eventually... Uh, he went to Hollywood. Um, he'd done he'd done a couple of tests in in New York that didn't go well. Uh, but he was on Broadway at this time. He was in he was in musicals on Broadway in the late twenties and early thirties. And he went to Hollywood simply simply uh, to try and to try and have another screen test. And they gave him a test uh, and. I think someone took more care with him. Someone bothered to, to groom him properly and light him properly. Uh, and that's when he got his, his first contract at Paramount. You mentioned his accent earlier. I, I noted a, an anecdote in your book uh, where you, you write that John Kennedy and his brother Robert <laughs> would phone Cary Grant from the White House and laughingly demand, let's hear your voice. Now, he was known for his kind of distinctive transatlantic accent i think that's is that fair to say yes um but i, I imagine at one point in his life he sounded quite bristolian a bit like me so you know <laughs> where, where did this where did this distinctive accent come from he did he did sound I, well i think you can hear bristol in his accent and uh even even you know uh, six or seven decades down the line, um, that he um, he maintained a little a little West Country uh, intonation and, and burr in in his accent. Um, but once he joined the acrobatic troupe, he was based in Brixton, uh, and um, at, at the time Brixton uh, had a sort of South London Cockney accent, uh, and so I think you can hear a little bit of that in his voice too. Uh, and then when he got to America, obviously his accent um, was was Americanized to some extent just from everyday life. But in his first Broadway contract, uh, it was stipulated that he would have vocal training, uh, and uh, so I think there's I think there's a bit of Broadway vocal training in there as well, and that's why the the cadence of his his speech is so pronounced that he's he's uh, trying trying to make himself easier to understand. Uh, and so it's it's a little bit of Bristol, it's a little bit of Brixton, and it's a little bit of Broadway, um, all all mixed together. There's a, another great um, Grant quote that you cite in the book, and that is, everyone wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be <laughs> Cary Grant. Now, I thought this kind of gets to the heart of your book, because you've got uh, the idea of this working class Englishman who was uh, originally called Archibald Leach, becoming this kind of debonair, dashed up, uh, dashing Hollywood icon, Cary Grant. I mean, that that image must must have taken a bit of cultivating. Is it, I mean, is it, is it something he really works hard on, and is it something he, he found difficult to sustain? I think I think it was something that was that he worked hard on. 
I think there's no doubt that he he worked very hard on it. Um, and particularly being able to um, act for the camera uh, in a way that maintained the the grace uh, and the um, the incredible sense of decorum that he has on screen. Um, if you watch his early films, and he, he and he made 25 films in his first five years in Hollywood. If you watch the early films, you can see him learning how to act for the camera. Uh, and part of that is how to be attractive for the camera. Uh, because he's, he's not quite as handsome uh, in his early films as he becomes later on. And, and he, he talked about this at the time, that he, he had to learn how to hold his chin so that he didn't get a double chin, this, this sort of thing. Uh, and, and I mentioned earlier, he had to, um, he learned how to use collars to hide his neck. So the, a lot of, a lot of um, what we assume is his natural handsomeness is, is actually um, very, very skilled presentation of himself. Um, he also, you know, famously um, became uh, the best dressed man in Hollywood, and I think I think you can you can watch him get better and better at at uh, um, learning how to wear clothes and choose clothes as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. When he was an adolescent, he grew up wondering uh, why his mother had had left him, and so. He was filled with insecurities generally, but I think insecurities particularly about women. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what made him so irresistible to the opposite sex and, and to the cinema going public on both sides of the Atlantic? I mean, what was the secret of his, of his enormous success? Well, I think once he, once he learned uh, how, how to look good on camera and how to act well on camera, um, there, was, uh, there was always the possibility that he would just look perfect. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't think people like perfection necessarily. They might resent it. They might find it annoying. So I, the real key to um, how he won people over, I think, is that he was, he was um, always willing to play the clown and he was always willing to slip on a banana peel or uh, do some sort of slapstick comedy. Uh, he was always willing uh, for his clothes to be ripped to shreds sometimes when he was wearing them. Um, and uh, so there's a, there's a dynamic there that I think people like. They, they go into a Cary Grant film thinking, oh yes, I know Cary Grant. He's, he's sm- so smooth. He's so polished. He's so debonair. Uh, and um, then they they enjoy once again seeing all of that stripped away from him. So you know, a lot of clothes, a lot of films, he has his clothes stolen, um, and he he ends up wearing something totally inappropriate, or he he ends up you know um, covered covered in some kind of muck or something like that. And so he he knew how to 
um, appeal to the audience in that way. And how famous was he? I mean, uh, was he one of, say, the top five uh, Hollywood stars in the world at any time? Yes. He, um, from about 1937 uh, until he retired in 1966, he was easily uh, easily the best paid Hollywood star. Uh, he was um, tremendously effective at negotiating contracts and getting getting more money. Um, but he was also um, he was also one of the best known, most popular leading men. There, funnily enough, it's at the end of his career when he's sixty years old that he's regularly in the top five most popular stars. Uh, so he he left on a high note. Up until that time, he he might have been you know in the top ten uh, or in the top twenty. Uh, but um, in the early nineteen sixties, when he's making his last films, North by Northwest, Charade, uh, um, Father Goose, he's he's number one or number two. And did he enjoy the trappings of his of his success? Was he was he comfortable um, living? living the life of a, of a Hollywood icon? Well, having, having been born into uh, poverty uh, and, and having experienced some, some considerable hardship, particularly as, a, as an adolescent, um, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he enjoyed the financial stability uh, that he had, um, the, the wealth that he, that he gained. Um, but one of, the, one of the nice things that I found out about him, one of the things that I admired about him was that he was he was never into the trappings of wealth. Um, so the house that he bought in, lived in for decades in, in Beverly Hills, the one that the one that has the vault in it, by the standards of Beverly Hills, it's, it's quite a modest house. It was a, you know it was a three or four bedroom, what they call a farmhouse, uh, and um, he he didn't he didn't throw his money around. He did he did buy a Rolls Royce. He did like his Rolls Royce. Uh, and he collected impressionist paintings, uh, most of which he eventually um, donated to a museum. Um, but by and large, he lived a fairly humble life, free of uh, excess and free of pretensions. Uh, can we talk about his personal life? I mean, he, he was married, am I right in saying, five times? <laughs> yes, five um, times. <laughs> I mean, what, what I, I mean, that suggests his love life was quite turbulent. I mean, I, I wonder if you could uh, just elaborate on that a little bit, please. So he was married five times. And when he wasn't married, he was quite often involved with women for um, long periods of time. He had, some, he had some long affairs and quite intense affairs that, that looked like they were going to head for marriage. So there, it was a turbulent uh, love life. There were many, many breakups um, and Every, I think every one of the women he was involved with said that he, they had a great time together. He could be a lot of fun. Um, he, in many ways, he was a wonderful partner, but that he also had many issues surrounding trust uh, and that he could be quite paranoid and distant uh, and anxious as well. Uh, and I think this stems from his mother's disappearance, that when he was an adolescent, he grew up wondering uh, why his mother had had left him, and so he was filled with insecurities generally, but I think insecurities particularly about women. Uh, for years, um, rumors swirled that he was uh, homosexual. I mean, how, how how did this impact upon his career? And 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 you give the rumors much much credence? 
I don't think the rumors impacted his career um, because they weren't that openly discussed. Uh, you know, from the time he was famous from the 1930s through the early 1960s, um, you know, to some extent, homosexuality was the love that dare not speak its name. It wasn't, it wasn't talked about. Uh, and so um, it, didn't, it didn't really impact his, his career. There, there has been a lot of speculation uh, that he was that he was gay, um, and one of the things I, I think I, I wanted to say at the outset of my book be, uh, was that I um, I don't think he was primarily gay, and I don't think he was um, even primarily bisexual, because when you when you look at his life and when you look through his relationships and see see his correspondence and um, um, get a sense of his personal life. He was involved with women intensely every step of the way, and so I think I, I was very careful to say this. This isn't to say that he never had any homosexual experiences. I'm just saying um, this was a man who was very interested in heterosexuality. And I think the other way we see one of the one of the um, things that I was able to gain access to was his home movies. Uh, he he was an avid um, home movie um, taker in uh, from the 1930s onward. So very early, he had this eight millimeter camera, and and that he he loved filming around the house and when he traveled and so on. So I could I could sort of see the world through his eyes, uh, and um, he. He so often points his camera at attractive women. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's a pretty good example of what, what in film studies we call the male gaze. That he likes, he likes to point his camera at attractive women uh, and um, objectify them in that sense. Uh, and uh, so, I, I felt as though I was, I was looking through the lens of a heterosexual man. Um, you also recite an anecdote where he arrives at his great friend Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock's house to be greeted with the words. I hope you'll forgive me, Carrie, but we are out of LSD. I mean, did he have a did he have a bad drug habit? Oh no, he didn't have a, a a bad drug habit at all. He took LSD when it was still legal uh, and under medical supervision. So this was a form of um, psychotherapy for him. He would go to a doctor's office every Saturday. Uh, and take LSD under this doctor's supervision uh, and have an eight-hour LSD trip uh, through which he explored his unconscious. Um, and he attributed this with, with freeing him uh, from a lot of the insecurities and anxieties that stemmed from his childhood. Uh, and uh, so he, he was, became an advocate of LSD while it was still legal, he wanted everyone to do LSD. He really thought that right. we would all be better off if we if we did a lot of LSD. But as soon as it was illegal, uh, he stopped advocating it and stopped doing it. Now, in the book, you you examine each of Grant's is it seventy two films? Seventy two films. Seventy two films, and that's, I mean, that's a hell of a lot of films. I mean, <laughs> if 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 you could, could you point out three that you would deem the greatest? That is a tough question. I mean, <laughs> I can I can start off with North by Northwest. Everyone should see North by Northwest. It's a very important film, not only for him, but uh, an important film in uh, in uh, film history more generally. Um, choosing a comedy, choosing one of the comedies, is very difficult. Um, I'm I'm going to go with Bringing Up Baby 
because um, that is a uh, delightful film and another another really key uh, film in, the, in in film history, a key screwball comedy. And now, where do I go for the for the third film? Uh, he was he was nominated for an Oscar uh, for a film that's I think largely forgotten or called called Penny Serenade, uh, which has elements of comedy but is really a, a melodrama uh, and um, quite a quite a sad film. Uh, and there's he has a he has a key moment in it where he where he cries on screen. And so I think just just for the sake of diversity, I'll choose I'll choose Penny Serenade. And, and which of the many very famous uh, leading ladies that he acted alongside would, would you say he, he worked best with? Well, um, he would have said Grace Kelly. Uh, he thought that Grace Kelly was the best actress he ever worked with, and he loved the way they, they interacted on screen. Um, and um, they improvised a lot of what they did in to Ca- he made To Catch a Thief with her. Uh, so he would say that. I actually uh, prefer him with Catherine Hepburn. I think they um, make a wonderful team, and that they they bring out the best in each other. Uh, that she she shatters his his reserve uh, and his polite demeanor quite effectively, uh, and he encourages her to be uh, uh, even even um, more outspoken and um, more liberated. Than she than she normally is in her films. Would you describe him as a great actor? I mean, wh- where does he stand um, in the pantheon of, of Hollywood greats? Well, I'm, he he has been described as the greatest actor in the history of cinema uh, by no less a source than David Thompson, who's who's one of the greatest film critics uh, um, of American cinema. Uh, so he has he has a lot of admirers. I think the and and of course some people react to that with dismay and say how can you say Cary Grant was was a great actor compared to someone say like Laurence Olivier or Marlon Brando. Well, why would they say that? Because there was um, the idea that he didn't play um, the kind of diverse roles that someone like Olivier played, and he wasn't a method actor in the way that Brando was. You don't see the kind of um, emo- emotional upheaval uh, in him that you see in in Brando. Uh, so there's a sense that he wasn't he wasn't that classical actor that Olivier was. He wasn't the method actor that Brando was. Uh, but I think Thompson's point, calling him the greatest cinema actor ever, is that he he learned so well how to act for the camera. Uh, he was a master of the absolute slightest movements the, the 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 raising of the eyebrow the 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 flicker of the eyes uh that those those early years in hollywood where he made so many films so quickly he really studied his performances and learned how to act for the camera in a way that few other people have have mastered and and did his acting change over the years his acting style i, I don't think his style his acting style changed I think what what changed was he got he got better at it. Um, he got more and more skilled at it, uh, and um, part of that came from working with some really important directors. Uh, and so, working with Howard Hawks, working with Alfred Hitchcock, George Stevens, George Cukor these these are the Hollywood greats. And I think he he got something from working with each of them in in terms of performance skills and learning 
um, how far he could how far he could go in terms of his performances. How did he change Hollywood? What I mean, what is his greatest legacy? I think his greatest legacy in 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 terms of the industry, in terms of Hollywood as an industry, was that he was one of the first stars to to break free of a studio's control. So at the time he came to Hollywood in the in the early 1930s, it was uh, normal for stars to sign an exclusive contract with a studio that lasted five years, six years, seven years. Um, and they had no control over their careers. They got paid a lot of money, these stars, uh, but they were completely beholden to the studio and had to do what the studio said. Um, no choice over anything. They didn't choose their directors. They didn't choose their co-stars. Um, they didn't even choose which films they made. And during that time, he was the five years that he was with Paramount, he really came to resent this and thought that they weren't doing a very good job with his career. The studio bosses weren't. And indeed, they weren't. His career really wasn't going anywhere for those first, for those first five years. Uh, and so he took an incredible risk by breaking, by breaking out of that. As soon as he could leave Paramount, as soon as his contract was, was over and he was able to walk out the door, he did. And everyone told him he was crazy to do this. Um, that it was probably the end of his career, um, but he he put his career together as a, as an independent star, uh, and slowly but surely came to insist on I'm going to approve the script, I'm going to approve the director, I'm going to approve my co-stars, and and really early on he says I'm going to take a percentage of the gross, the box office gross. Uh, and this is where we are. This is where we've been in Hollywood since um, the 1960s, uh, at least, that uh, stars really run the show and they have their own production companies and they have, they have big stars have control over every aspect of their careers. Well, he had this by 1940. Uh, and uh, just about every other star in Hollywood uh, looked at that longingly and said, I, I, I want to run my career. I want to have this kind of control. Uh, and he, he managed to get it very early on. Uh, and uh, um, big, big stars like Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland started fighting to have the same kind of power. So could it be argued that uh, of all British actors, he, he's the one who had the, the biggest impact on the American market? Absolutely. Um, Britain's greatest export, he's been called. Uh, certainly Britain's greatest export to Hollywood. That there's, I don't think there's any, any comparison in terms of the kind of, of impact he had. That was Mark Glancy. Mark's latest book, Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, is published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Catherine Neal discussing Edward I. Hey.